ahead and turn over to John chapter 12 this morning. John chapter 12. A few years back, I share this with you, Kathleen and I discovered that YouTube has all sorts of free exercise videos that uh, you can use at all different levels. Uh, it's a great way, I think, to add to our overall health and flexibility, maybe shed a few pounds, etc. especially on rainy days and cold days, which we have here in New York from time to time. Um, we found a bunch of them, a couple of trainers in particular that we, uh, that we really like uh, over some of the others. Um, but one particular exercise video that we were working with, uh, the trainer uh, was focusing on balance, you know, standing on one foot and then taking the other leg and doing circles this way and circles this way. And yours truly is falling all over the place. And, and, and the trainer said in that video, and I'll never forget it, they said that balance is like a muscle. I didn't know that. If you don't use it, you lose it. And apparently I hadn't been using it between sitting at a computer, right, and, and, and things. I mean, I, you know, I got to the place where I couldn't pick up one foot and stand on one foot like this for more than about three or four seconds. I was just, it was like, really? I was astounded how much I had lost my balance. Fortunately, through exercise and different things, I've been working on it, I got that back, which obviously is going to help us, you know, as, as we age, as we get older. Um, but boy, you know, when you lose your balance, it's kind of easy to fall, isn't it? Right? And that not only applies to our bodies, but to our lives as well, doesn't it? Balance is defined as the stability achieved when weight is equally distributed around a center point. And if you and I are going to have stability in life, our lives have to be centered, right? And what is that center well, let's find out as we go into the book of John, chapter 12. A couple of weeks ago, we began to look at the account of Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus, and how she took that expensive uh, perfumed ointment uh, worth about a year's wages. Okay, in, in today's U.S. economy, we're talking about uh, a number between thirty and thirty-five thousand dollars. Okay. Not a tiny sum of money. Uh, poured out upon the feet of Jesus as an act of love and devotion to the King of Kings. So then in verse 4, it says this, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, this was actually a pretty reasonable question, wasn't it? If it came from anybody but Judas. Because as it says in verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Now, that, that's, a, that's another sermon in itself, that Jesus, knowing the heart of Judas, like he would have, would have put him in charge of the money giving him opportunity 
for redemption, giving him opportunity and responsibility. Uh, it's just a, a really interesting way to handle uh, things. Gave him enough rope to hang himself, I guess, as well. Um, but again, that's a whole other sermon. Uh, again, a pretty logical question, though, when you think about it, for a couple of reasons. Number one, Jesus was not a televangelist with a $4 million summer home and a private jet. Okay. Matter of fact, he said in Matthew 8:20, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Okay. Jesus didn't own stuff, right? When he left home, he 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 didn't amass wealth for himself. He didn't own a home. He didn't have Furniture. He didn't have anything that tied him down. He moved from place to place. They would uh, li- li- live in a tent. They would uh, uh, stay with friends, all that kind of thing, right? Um, so clearly, Jesus was not in it for the money. As a matter of fact, you get the idea that both he and those who traveled with him basically had their, their needs met. And that was about it. Uh, as a matter, matter of fact, when the we issue of a certain tax came up in Matthew 17, Jesus had Peter go catch a fish. Remember reading that? Go go cast a line in the water. When you catch a fish, open its mouth. There will be a coin in there. Uh, pretty cool. Um, but and and there will be the money for you and me, Peter, to pay this tax. It wasn't like Jesus reached into his pocket like the old gas jockeys used to and pulled out a big, huge wad of cash and just, okay, here you go. Right? No, they didn't have a whole bunch on hand. Basically, hand to mouth. Right? So that's number one. Number two, we also know from from all reading all through the Old Testament that God has always been very concerned about the poor and people taking care of people. Right? Big thing on the heart of God. When Israel would fall into sin, he'd say, you're forgetting the poor, you're forgetting the widows, you're forgetting the orphans, right? No, God over and over said, take care of the poor. So this not only would be very important to the heart of God, but very important to the heart of Jesus, who was God, right? Um, So again, a pretty logical question. But look at Jesus' response in verse 7. He says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. There's two separate parts of this answer uh, that we want to look at this morning. First of all, he says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Matthew's version, it's a bit clearer. He says this, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Again, was she aware that she was doing that? I don't know. It doesn't seem that anybody really was catching on to what was going on, that Jesus was going to die, right, until it actually happened. But to anoint a body for burial was a very common Jewish custom, Um, one which I understand was very, very seldom afforded to any Roman criminals. So, yes, she was doing a very good and a very important thing uh, for Jesus here. But the second part of his response is one that can be somewhat troubling if you just look at it in face value. 
Again, the fact that something this valuable was used in this manner and not given uh, to, to benefit a whole lot of poor people, that actually troubled, according to Matthew and Mark in, in, in their accounts, it, it troubled more than just Judas. A lot of the disciples uh, wondered about this. But Jesus says this, the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Is that pride coming from the one whom up to this point we've seen, we've known, was selfless, caring, compassionate, one who said, I don't come to be served but to serve? Is all of a sudden he like changing his to Well, you're not always going to have me, right? Kind of a weird response at face value. But think about this for a moment. A moment. The Pharisees were known to keep the law, weren't they? I mean, to a fault. Not only the law, but traditions that they had added on and on and on and on. So they would have, according to Jewish law, they would have dedicated a portion of their income every year to the poor, right? Would have been just something that they would do. Year after year after year, and many for a long, long time. So they did that. And yet most of them, as we've read about, as we've, we've seen this progression here, have rejected Jesus as Messiah. They've rejected him as the one that God sent to um, deliver them from sins and to give them eternal life. And in that rejection... They have condemned themselves to a godless eternity in darkness and in torment. So in the grand scheme of things, what is of greater importance? Giving to the poor or the worship of Jesus? What needs to take priority? What needs to take precedence? What needs to have first place? See, Mary's actions put the worship of Jesus as the priority over everything. Remember, it, was, it, it, it represented her future. It was, it was wealth. It was uh, that which was sustainer. It might have been her dowry, right? Um, all of that given to him in an act of worship. She put him the priority over everything else as it should Because ultimately, when Jesus is the central focus of our lives, everything else falls into place. Everything else comes into balance when he is that center point. First of all, when we worship Jesus, what are we doing? We are saying that we believe that he is the Son of God. We believe that he is the Savior, the one who has come to redeem us, the one who has taken our sins, the one and only way to God the Father, right? We're declaring that. When Jesus is the central focus of our lives, we declare that we ourselves are not God, right? Very good thing to do. 
think we come into this world, we kind of think we're the center of everything, right? No, we declare that we're not God, but created beings. Fallen and in need of his salvation, in need of his grace, right? That not only puts us in a right relationship with God. Think about it, him on top, you know. But it also puts us on the right relationship with our fellow imperfect fallen human beings, doesn't it? See, when he's at the top, when he's center focus, everything falls into place. When Jesus is the central focus of our lives, then spiritual things become more important than things like money, power, fame, pleasure, on and on. It produces a character of godliness, selflessness, generosity, one that exhibits the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which not only ultimately helps the poor, right? Lives of love, caring, not only helps the poor, but everybody else in our lives. And ultimately us as well, doesn't it? When our lives are fruitful like that. When Jesus is the central focus of our lives, then his will and his ways takes precedence over my will, my way. And that leads to righteousness justice, and the things like loving our neighbor, right? All good things. All good things. I say loving our neighbor, also loving our enemies, right? When Jesus is the central focus of our lives, we also see ourselves as dearly loved children of God, don't we? Those whom he came to save, those whom he valued, those whom he loved enough to die for. Valued, redeemed, heirs of his promises, not only for this life, but for the life to come. Amen. When Jesus is the central focus of our lives, life then has a higher purpose, doesn't it? Instead of chasing after money, power, fame, etc., etc., life has an eternal purpose, a purpose that's bigger than all of that, a purpose to know him and to make him known to others. So do you see it? When Jesus is the center point in our lives, everything else balances out just like it should. Our relationship with God, our relationship with others, the things that we say and do, and even more importantly, the reasons why we say and do them. Likewise, by the same token, if anything or any person, including ourselves, moves Jesus out of that center point, what happens? We're off balance. We tend to fall, don't we? For the Pharisees, Their focus was the law itself. The law at all costs. 
and the traditions and everything else, right? To the extent that they absolutely blew it out of proportion. To the extent that they castigated Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, right? Here he does miracles for people. Wonderful uh, things in people's lives, changing lives. You did that on the Sabbath. They get down on him for it. Um, eating with unwashed hands, right? Um, befriending sinners. I wouldn't go near those people. I wouldn't go near their houses. Befriending sinners because they needed to know the love of God. But the law, right? The traditions. That was the focus to the point that they missed him. And the one they claimed to worship was standing right in front of them. They missed him. Out of balance. For Judas, as we said, his focus was on the money. His focus was on the money. He missed him too, didn't he? Finally selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Other people throughout the generations have focused their lives on serving humanity. A wonderful thing. But think about this. There will always be poor. There will always be noble causes, but there is only one Savior. There is only one way that leads to eternal life. You and I may have multiple opportunities to reach out to the poor in our lives. But how many opportunities do we have to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Because, you know, some say, well, I may do that tomorrow. I may do that next week. I may do that next month, next year. Tomorrow, next week, next month, next year are not guaranteed, are they? Right? And you know, if you spend any time around the Word of God, you know that it's not as easy as that. That, that the Holy Spirit is involved in that process, illuminating our hearts and minds to who Jesus is, causing us to understand, yes, he is the Son of God who has come to redeem us, to save us, to take our sin upon himself, the unique, uh, effective sacrifice who died on the cross for us and offers us free of charge the gift of eternal life, right? Right? That just doesn't happen in your mind and, oh, I get it and I can do that anytime. No, there is a spiritual work involved. There is a window that opens, if you will. Not an opportunity that happens every single day. To be face to face with him, so to speak. To have our eyes opened. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says it this way, For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time when the Holy Spirit has opened that window, has illumined our hearts to the truth to respond to him. Not only responding to him for the first time, but even sitting in church, hearing a message from the word of God 
and the Holy Spirit working on our hearts and say, yeah, I need to do that. I need to put Jesus back on the center. I need to put him back in his place. Because tomorrow we're going to be back at it. We're going to be running here and there and doing this and doing that, right? There's a window that opens when the Spirit of God is wooing, is drawing us to himself. A time to step through to meet him, right? So let's do that this morning as we bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for being there for us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for the work that you do to illumine our hearts. That we can even understand, Lord, that we can come out of the shadow, come out of the darkness and understand who Jesus is and why he came. To understand that you love us and want to have a relationship with us, that you would would put my sin, our sin, on Jesus. And And the full weight of condemnation and punishment came down upon him so that we could be forgiven and free and be offered eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for giving that understanding. And if you're here today, in church, or listening to this, or watching this online, and you have not yet opened that door, but the Holy Spirit is now speaking to your heart, I urge you, take the opportunity. Now is the day of salvation. Open your heart and say, Jesus, that's what I want. I want to be forgiven. I want to receive you as my personal Savior. Come into my heart and life, Lord. Save me. Teach me what it means to know you and to walk with you and to share you with others through my life. And if you're here this morning and you say, yeah, I I made that decision some time ago, but I've led other things become my focus other things other people me what I want to become the center of my life and I can tell I'm off balance let that be your prayer this morning Jesus I put you back where you belong the central focus the object of worship the preeminence the one before all things my life might get back into balance. I walk with you, my relationship with others, the things I do and say. Be the center, Lord, my life. Thank you for that, Lord. Praise you this morning. Give you all the glory and the honor. Jesus, we pray.